Welcome to episode 217 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 217 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I am great. I'm in this phase of in between when I, I sent off my book with the edits that my editor wanted me to make, and now it's in copy editing. So I have a couple of weeks of downtime and <sighs> <laughs> copy editing is scary. So then it'll come back and then... Yeah, I've got all the dates. I can't remember them. Oh, here I have actually, here I have the printout of them beside me. I was like, I had them somewhere, but here they are. The copy editor, I'll get it back June 28th from the copy editor. And then I have like a week to get it all back to them. 
And then I get another set of it like a month later after they've done something else with it. And then I have an, like another week or so, maybe two weeks this time to give more feedback. This is the thing, though, that's so scary. Mm-hmm. Sometimes things get like changed up. Like I found out with Fast Feast Repeat, something got changed in the process that was right on a one version. And then like a some paragraph got in there in the, the wrong place. So, you know, you have to like read it so carefully and make sure things <laughs> didn't get moved around. There's a lot of hands on it. Let me just put it that way. Yeah. I remember when that happened with my book a few times. Yeah. I'm just going to cross my fingers that I'm reading it for, I don't know when I'm reading it for Audible, but I hope that I'm reading it for Audible before it's in line for the printer, because that's what happened last time. I was reading it for Audible, and I found, you know, the weird things, and they're like, too late. We're already in line at the printer. I'm like, what? Okay. Yeah. And you can't apparently change something, get out of line. Seems like you should be able to do that. You should be able to change your file, but you can't. It's not how it works. Well, fingers crossed it all manifests. It It's true. <laughs> it's a lot more complicated than self-publishing, but so much worth it. Yeah. I went in Barnes & Noble this week. Every now and then I just go in and I like to look at my book on the shelf. And <laughs> I, it was so surreal because like since my last name is Avalon A, I'm right by all the authors. that. So like Dave Asprey, I'm like right by Dave. So I took a picture and I put it on my Instagram, but I took a picture of just my book and the immediate surrounding books. And I knew so many people right next to me. And it's weird to think that that's just like the A's and B's and C's, you know, authors. It was like Dave Asprey, James Clement, Jonathan Baylor, Dr. Alan Christensen. I was like, so many people. So it's exciting. I didn't sign it though. Do you sign it if you ever go in? Well, I've done it a couple times. Yeah, I did. I did it one time in Augusta and once at Myrtle Beach. At the one at Myrtle Beach was funny. It was before I, I stopped doing as much drinking as I'm doing. Not that I was like some, you know, <laughs> crazy drinker, but we had been to brunch. I was there with my friends from college and we had been to brunch for a long time <laughs> and had multiple drinks. They were like, let's go see if my book is there. So that I was like, I'm the author. Can I sign it? They're probably like, that girl, she was crazy. Because <laughs> I was in the happy phase of having had a few drinks. Let me just put it that way. I wasn't like sloppy wasted. No. <laughs> But, you know, that that's not how I roll. But you know what I'm saying. I wonder how late Barnes & Noble is open. If they're open late, I should do that sometime. Like have a glass of wine and then. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe don't go after a long, a long boozy brunch. I'm sure they probably were like thinking we were lots of fun. Let's just call it that. But that might be like the last time I had that that much to drink. Because that right after that, I was like, you know, it's really just not working for me. Yeah, I can't day drink. Yeah, well, we did go have a nap after that. <laughs> but no, day drinking is definitely not for me. And now I, I just, you know, one drink, two drinks max. Is <laughs> and I'm just like, all right, that's enough. It feels so much better. I don't ever really drink that much. I drink my dry farm wines. Actually, I'm continuing to read Dr. Bruce's book, The Power of When. And he talks about the best time for each chronotype to drink their drink. Well, now I really wonder what the best time for me to drink. Okay, because did we think you're a lion? Yeah, I'm, I am I think I'm a lion. Okay, the lion, I can tell you really quick. Is the answer never? <laughs> I think it's early in the day. Let me check. You would have dinner and one drink at six o'clock-ish. So the lion's metabolism best tolerates alcohol at four o'clock. So... He says, quote, in good conscience, I can't advise anyone to start happy hour at four o'clock, but that is <laughs> but that is when Alliance Metabolism best tolerates alcohol. If you start drinking at dinner time, you can handle one or two glasses without feeling flattened, but do not drink after 7.30 p.m. or your body won't be able to metabolize the alcohol in your system before bed. Oh my gosh, that is 100% true. He's right. Yes. When I have like one glass of wine with an earlier kind of dinner, it's when I, you know, keep drinking it or have a second glass after dinner and nurse it for a while until maybe eight or nine. That's when it starts to interfere with my sleep. He's right. That's hilarious. So for me, I'm a dolphin. Okay. So for the dolphin, if you're having alcohol, if you meet a friend for a drink or have a glass of wine between 830 to 1030, 
make sure you have your last swallow by nine o'clock PM. So significantly later for the dolphin that I can have my wine. And I don't mm, no, I usually have my last wine. I usually buy 10. So I feel like if I had a glass of wine at four, then I'd be like asleep by eight. <laughs> That's not going to work. So he talks about how, is this what you experience? He talks about how the lion, it's like once they hit their like sleep time, it's like the brain just like shuts off and it's just like bedtime. Yeah. It's really, really hard to stay awake. I always saw my dad experience that. I just don't understand that. I'm just like, I just can't comprehend that. Yeah. I'm like, I've got to go to bed right now. That's what he makes it sound like. You know, even in college, I would be like the one who'd be like, I'm out. <laughs> not not all the time, but sometimes. He talks about that. So he talks about for each chronotype when they leave the party. Like, and he talks about how the lions are like the first to leave the party. Uh-huh. I'm definitely a lion. And the wolves are the last to leave. I can't wait to talk to him. Yeah. So next week I'm just doing a phone call just to like talk to him and then going to bring him on the show. So very exciting. Very cool. Anyways, shall we jump into everything for today? Yes. All right. So to start things off, we have a follow-up email about a topic we've been discussing on the show, which was the role of fasting and gallstones. And this comes from Mario. Mario says, Jen and Melanie, it seems you have just answered a question on the gallbladder on a recent podcast, but you said you were only able to find limited evidence about this in journals. I'm hoping to shed a bit of light on this. I work in healthcare and I have some anecdotal evidence with this, but not much in terms of medical journals. Like Jen says, you'd hear more about it if it was a problem. My anecdotal evidence is not for people who practice fasting as a lifestyle, but those who fast for religious purposes. During Lent and Ramadan, more people come in for gallbladder complaints. The theory behind this is that the gallbladder is a wallet for unused bile in the body. When you eat a fatty meal, the liver secretes bile, but while it is busy making more, your body pulls out ready-made bile that was stored in your gallbladder. Stones in general precipitate out of solution when there is increased concentrations, like crystallizing salt when you boil off the water but it does not redissolve when the concentration goes down. Gallstones can have different types depending on the components, such as calcium stones from oxalates, and this can depend on your diet. If the gallbladder is constantly emptying out, there's less chance for the stones to form. If there are stones, they are usually small and will sink to the bottom of the gallbladder. Therefore, fasting allows for biliary stasis, which then leads to more time for stone formation. Unfortunately, stone formation is a lengthy process, Journal studies generally do not do studies that will give results in a few years because of the funding issues to do long studies and the rate of patients getting lost to follow up. Also, when your study has no marketing potential, so no drug to sell or process to market, there is no reason to do studies for it. I have a quick question, Jen, because I've been thinking about this a lot because I think I do think about that, how the intention of studies is typically to sell drugs, but there are a lot of studies on fasting. You know, so there's not really drugs related to fasting. Have you thought about this before? It really depends on the on who's funding the study. You know, and, and he's right when he says that a lot of studies are funded by drug companies, but not all of them are. Not all studies are funded by drug companies. You, know, you can get grants and things like that. You know, my husband's a research chemist, and so, I mean, he's not been funded by a drug company ever. True, true, true. The closest thing would be if ever there's they try to develop, you know, fasting mimetic drugs or drugs that, you know, if they're studying fasting to figure out how the health benefits happen, then, you know, trying to create drugs that would mimic that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on at, at universities that is not funded by like big pharma. Yeah. Okay. That's good. And there's a lot that is. I mean, you know. <laughs> Okay, so he says the IF community is relatively young for the amount of time it takes for stones to develop. Maybe when the 20-year-olds in your community reach 50s to 60s after doing IF for 30 years, then we may get some data and can do a retrospective study on the effects on intermittent fasting on gallstones. I first heard of IF about five years ago. I found out about the different plans, but was unable to get started due to a lack of resolve and meal planning. The gallbladder issue was a factor back then too, but my friend was unable to address that question. My tip for looking up information about this topic will be to look up abstracts in PubMed and Google Scholar, but use jargon like 
biliary stasis, which is delayed gallbladder emptying. I don't even know how to say this. Uh, I feel bad for our transcript writers right now. Cholelithiasis, which is gallstones, or cholecystitis. Cholecystitis, which is gallbladder inflammation due to gallbladder blocked by gallstones, which is the cause of the gallbladder-associated pain. He says you can also take a look at textbooks for the theory rather than in journals. I hope this clarifies a bit and helps you in your research. I'm still interested in continuing this on for now, but wonder if more frequent cheat days is the solution for this. Kind regards, Mario. Yeah, that was great info, Mario. Thank you for sending that in. You know, it makes me think instead of, you know, quote, cheat days, maybe ADF, alternate daily fasting. Oh, yeah, that would be. Because, you know, every other day is an up day if you're doing alternate daily fasting. So I wonder with the stasis that he talks about with things like, I wonder how many hours it takes for that to. Me too. Yeah. The study we talked about the last time was the one that looked at the fasting. I feel like there was like an increased risk at, at like, wasn't it between like 12 and 16 hours or like at like 12 hours. But then after that, it, the risk actually went down. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah. For listeners, we talked about this on a recent episode. One other thing I'd like to just draw attention to that he talked about I do like how he pointed out that we don't really have long-term studies on a lot of the things in the IF community. It will be interesting to see over time, you know, how things manifest, but we have been doing fasting for, you know, a very long time as a species. So at least there's that kind of reminds me, one of the things that Gary Tops talks about in the case for keto is he questions the potential safety of foods and dietary protocols and things like that. And he talks about how a lot of people debate health potential of dietary fat. I think he's quoting somebody else, but he calls them vintage fats. And it's more likely that the fats we've been eating for, you know, thousands of years are likely much more safe for the human constitution than non-vintage fats or just food in general. I agree completely. Really, I think if we all just started eating real food, that people have been eating for thousands of years. If you go back to what your great-great-great-great-grandmother ate and ate that, you'll probably be fine. Now, I can't just say grandmother because my grandmother was drinking Tab and putting saccharin in her tea. So you have to go back farther than your grandmother (laughs) now, you know. But the foods that that our our bodies, you know, are adapted to eating those foods that are traditional foods. Like even saturated fats, for example, we've been eating for, you know, thousands of years compared to well, obviously like trans fats, but even, you know, refined polyunsaturated fats, we wouldn't really have been exposed to. Well, I mean, you know, think back in history, even, you know, let's go back to medieval England, you know, all the the nobility that had the more refined foods and the more indulgent foods and the more, more processed foods, they had like worse, you know, lifestyle diseases than the peasants. They were all healthy. I would have been a peasant. <laughs> I mean, my family, they were peasants, but, you know, we're down there eating the brown bread and I don't know what else we were eating. It was probably not something I would recognize as food right now, but we had different issues, obviously, with our health. You know, people were more likely to die of infections and viruses, you know, the plague, but the lifestyle diseases with the food, the nobility did have those. Yeah, that's definitely been a trend, (laughs) affluence and the effect, so... Thank you, Mario. That was very insightful, everything that he said. Thank you for sending it. In 30 years, we'll have a follow-up on episode 10,942. I don't know. I just did that. That's probably not the right math, but. (laughs) The other book I'm reading right now, or one of the books, there's so many, I'm bringing back on, I think I talked about Sergey Young before. He's the longevity investor. So he finally has his book coming out and I'm reading it right now. It's blowing my mind. Okay. The stuff that he thinks is going to happen like relatively soon with health advances, I'll be really, really curious to see if it manifests. And it seems like so out there and so far removed, but you think about how far we've come just in a few years, I guess it could be possible. It's things like, I mean, it's all like longevity stuff, but, and reversing aging, but wearables and monitoring health conditions and computer artificial intelligence and health. We shall see. That is so cool. By the way, I just actually did the math. It will not be episode 10,000. It would be episode 1,560 in 30 years, <laughs> plus 217. So 
I, the reason I thought it would be so big is because we already are on episode 217 and it feels like we just started. It does feel like that. Yeah. But we did not just start. We should go back and listen to our first episode, the elusive first episode that I don't think I even have it anymore. I don't. We should go listen to episode number two. We've been doing this for four years. Four years? Wait, actually, four years? Yeah. Just over four years. We started in 17. If we make it to five years, I'll be half a decade. Right. Isn't that crazy? Yes. <laughs> crazy. All right. Now my mind is blown. It just seemed like 30 years would be a lot more than that. But there's, you know, 52 weeks in a year. So I multiplied it by 30 and it was smaller than I was thinking when I just randomly blurted out 10,000. But, you know, in 300 years when we get to episode 10,000. Yeah, we're not going to live that long. Sorry. Sergey Young thinks that thinks we might. Yeah, he thinks immortality will be an option. And then like he thinks death will only occur from accidents, but those will be less common because most of the accident things that we engage in today will have been taken care of, like car crashes and stuff. And then if you do die in an accident, you can be an avatar. Yeah, that's now that's just gotten beyond me. I don't think I want to be an avatar and live forever. No, thank you. Well, you don't have to if you don't want to. <laughs> and you also don't have to live forever. Oh, that was, wait, sorry, last thing. He asked this question and it's so funny because he had the same approach to it that I did. So I might've asked you this before. I thought everybody would want to live forever. We've talked about this, right? I don't know if we have. I always just assumed everybody would want to live forever. But when I ask people, I feel like most people I ask don't want to live forever. Well, also, what age people are you asking? Because you're a lot younger than me. Are you asking people my age? We're like over it. No, I'm not. We're not over it. That that's. <laughs> but we already know we don't want to live forever. That's all I'm saying. I'm probably mostly asking people your age. Yeah. We love life. Life is fabulous. I love life. But I feel like I will perpetually. I don't know. I guess we'll see. I want to live for a long, long time. Somewhere between a long time and forever, though, <laughs> is the answer. <laughs> I do want to live, have a long, healthy life. Well, he talks about how three reasons people usually don't want to live forever. And then when you dismantle them, maybe people do want to live forever. It's like people associate living forever with being decrepit, you know, like being old and not being able to function. But that would not be the case. And then people think think that it's selfish or taxing to the environment if everybody lived forever. I haven't gotten to the chapter where he discusses that yet, but he says that's not a problem. I have to admit, I did wonder about that because, you know, if you if you live forever, then all the other generations grow up and now they're all adults too. And so now we have all these adults. What do we do with all these adults? Like so many adults. Because everybody that's a child grows up, do you stop having children? And that would be sad because children are amazing. I love children. So I think the answer is not a bunch of adults and never having children. Children are like like such a pleasure of life. Now, I'm not just talking about your own children, but like, like I'm loving watching my nieces grow up. And one day I'll have grandchildren and teaching children. So, all right, I'm thumbs down with immortality. No. <laughs> I'm curious. I'll have to report back when I read that chapter. The only thing he said that he teased about it was he said that, I didn't know this. Did you know that? Well, I, get, I don't know if I knew this. Our expansion rates are actually dropping. I did know that. Yeah, I did know that. Mm -hmm. I think he said like Japan and one other country are predicted to have like half of their population. I don't know. I don't know what the timeline is on that. But I once read a statistic about that, that every you know, man, woman, couple, you know, whether you're married, whatever, needs to procreate at the rate of two point something. I mean, clearly we can't have point of a child, but, you know, that's like the average two point something in order to, you know, continue to keep the species up, you know, because there's two of you, you have to reproduce by. Oh, so once you fall below that, will the species actually eventually? Well, I mean, if the average fell to less than two, for all of humans, they'll just think about that. You're not reproducing at the rate that's enough, you know, to replace you when you die. Mm. Doesn't it get exponential though again? Because you have, I don't know. I can't remember. I just know that I read that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, not if you're each, if two people produce two people, that would not be exponential. Think about it. 
If every two people produced exactly two people and then they die. But then those have two. Well, those two people each have two people and then they die. It's not, you're not adding. All right, me, here's me and Chad. That's two of us. If we have two children, that's two more people. Then we die and we've made two people. Those two people marry somebody else that, you know, that we did not create. But between them, no, it's not going to be exponential. It's only exponential if you create more people than you. Does that make sense? Yeah. If every two people created three people, now it's starting to get exponential. Yes. Okay. I will spend too much time thinking about this. I know. It's like, huh. (laughs) Well, anyway, my logic could be completely off, but it sounds perfectly reasonable to me right this minute. So the other night I met with four friends. There was four combinations of a possibility of something that could happen. Each one of us was one of those combinations. And the amount of time I spent later that night trying to figure out the odds of that. So like if there are like four possible options and four people met and each person is like one of those four options. I wish I like still remembered math better, like permutations. If you don't use it, you lose it. I know. Good times. All right. We have a question. From Christine, the subject is inhalers. I have been reading your book, Fast Feast Repeat. As I am reading, I started thinking about my puffers for asthma, wondering if they affect my weight. So I looked it up and it can because they're steroids. Wondering if you can expand on this at all or if you have in the past. Also wondering when I do take the puffer, it is in the nighttime before I go to bed. Will this take me out of my fast? I'm just starting to listen to all of your podcasts. Thank you, Christine. All right. So this is a great question from Christine. So in general, steroids are usually (sighs) linked to weight gain. And I've always thought that it was usually because mostly electrolyte issues, like they cause you to retain water, but they can also just in general affect hormones. And so it's possible that they can increase your appetite and make you gain weight that way, or actually even change where your body stores fat. Which kind of connects to what we were talking about last time with, you know, like, is a calorie a calorie and how there's so many factors that go into weight loss and weight gain. And medication, I think, is a a hugely underappreciated piece of the puzzle for many people in that. So medication doesn't have calories, but taking certain medication can 100% change, you know, how your body is using and storing calories if you're gaining or losing weight. So, so yeah, so steroids can cause weight gain, that could be a thing. But as far as it actually breaking your fast, we don't consider medications breaking the fast. So fasting is about if you're eating or not eating. It's not about if you're taking something that changes how you are metabolizing energy. That's not breaking your fast if it's not food. Jen, do you have thoughts? Well, just, you know, that that's one of the things we know about steroids. Like Melanie said, they are they are linked to weight gain. I mean, that is a well well publicized, well understood side effect. And so, you have to take what you need to breathe, right? If you've got asthma and you've got to use your inhaler for medication in order to breathe, you have to do it. Weight gain may be the side effect, but it's important to take that medication that you need. Now, here's a plus. With intermittent fasting, you may find your asthma gets a lot better. And so I've actually heard this a lot. People who were asthmatics, who required inhalers a lot prior to intermittent fasting, get to the point where they no longer need them. Inflammation goes down. So you may find you don't need to use your inhaler. Of course, you know, talk to your doctor. Don't just stop using it. You know, make a plan and you know, use it when you need to. You know, fingers crossed, maybe you you won't need it for long. A few different books that I've read recently have actually had chapters on asthma and whatever the subject of the book was (laughs) linked asthma to, you know, whatever the subject of the book was. But in general, the subject of the books, they've been things like metabolic issues regarding like insulin sensitivity or dietary approaches or things like that. So a lot of people, like Jen just said, with fasting, find a lot of health conditions that they might not suspect would be affected by fasting, actually get better or even go into remission. So yeah. Yep. Oh, and I have an update. I looked it up because I was curious. The number is 2.1. 
the, the fertility rate needs to be 2.1 in order for the size of the population to remain stable. So I, my, my logic was right. Um, and just for a little bit of info here, in 1950, the average, I just want you to guess, I'm, I'll do what you always do. How many, how many children? Oh, I love the guessing game. <laughs> Not knew you did. All right. In 1950, guess what the average rate of how, you know, how many children a woman would have in her lifetime was? Four. It was 4.7. 4.7? Yep. 4.7. Of course, that's an average. No one's having 0.7 of a child, but you know, one person had four, someone else had five, right? 1950. Yeah, in 1950. And I guess it's like probably a worldwide stat, putting it all together. And of course, it depends country to country. What will it be by 2100? By 2100? Okay, wait. So you said it needs to be 2.1 for us to... So do I think that they think by 2100 that we will be stable or not? That is the question. Hmm. So I think 2.1. No. It was already 2.4 by 2017. So they're predicting it will fall to 1.7 by 2100. And so this article... Ooh. Yeah, the the researchers are predicting that the number of people on the planet will peak around 2064 and then begin to fall. Isn't that interesting? Unless Sergey Young is correct, in which case. <laughs> well, then we got a different problem. <laughs> because, you know, do you want to, will you change careers a bunch of times? You know, you don't want to do the same job for 500 years, probably. And by that time, you're really tired of your husband's BS. I'm just going to tell you. 500 years later, you're like, I didn't sign up for eternity for 500 years. <laughs> I just won't get married. Solve that problem. That would change everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another reason I don't want to. Just forever. What are you going to do like for the next 100 years? You know, how many jobs do you want to have? I guess maybe it would be a plus. You could try a lot of jobs. I could be an interior designer like I wanted to be, and then I could do something else. I've never wanted to do anything else besides the stuff that I do. I really, I have so many things I would like to do. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Got me thinking. All right. Shall we go on to our next question? Yes. Okay. So this is a little bit of a long email, but has two good questions. So this is from Jen. The subject is everything is terrible, berberine rebound, hyperglycemia slash gut microbiome changes, a question mark. It's a very descriptive subject. Jen says, number one, hi ladies. Number one, I did the Zoe test after hearing Jen talk about it and much to my dismay, everything came back as quote, bad, bad blood sugar clearance, bad blood fat clearance, bad gut microbiome. I am so disappointed. I was surprised because my fasting glucose is typically in the 70s to 80s, and I eat a lot of different vegetables and take P3OM. I eat an omnivorous diet where my main meal is usually pretty healthy, focusing on whole foods, but I still enjoy a smallish amount of processed junky stuff for my snacks, which I know I need to minimize for my gut microbiome and overall dietary inflammation. I've started my Zoe program and noticed that if I eat the exact same amount of the exact same foods in a day, but portion slash time them differently, I can get a vastly different Zoe score. For example, entering a meal time to my usual one meal a day lifestyle, where I'll have a large amount of fat, we will arbitrarily say 60 grams in a short period of time will significantly lower my score. But if I have that exact same amount of fat with the exact same foods, but spread out over a meal and a snack, spaced at least a few hours apart where I have 40 grams and then 20 grams of fat later, my day score will be much higher. I get that's because of the impact of dietary inflammation from too much fat, especially with my slow fat clearance. Does this mean one meal a day really is not the IF lifestyle for me? Do you think my one meal a day lifestyle is making this worse since I eat one large meal a day plus some smaller snacks that basically dump all my macronutrients in a short period of time? Should I do two really small meals spaced apart to give my sluggish blood sugar and fat clearance time to move things out? This will really cut down my daily fasting hours and I'd hate to miss out on all the health benefits of a longer fast. But if one meal a day creates too much of an inflammatory blood fat burden on me, 
I suppose that could negate the benefits of a longer fast in the first place, question mark. And then she tells us a little bit about her. She says she's been doing one meal a day with clean fasting for a little over a year, usually 20 to 24 hours fasting with around a three-hour eating window, sometimes 18-hour fast on the weekends. I usually still do 40 to 44-hour fast once a week, followed by an up day. My fasting glucose usually 70s to 80s. HbA1c is in the low five. My cholesterol and triglycerides are excellent. Blood pressure is good. Normal BMI. Despite her garbage gut microbiome, she can eat anything comfortably. Really loves doing one meal a day and feels great on it. And when she did two smaller comparison meals, when she was doing the Zoe test, she felt hungry and unsatisfied. But maybe there's a lot of dietary inflammation going on inside. And she says, I don't know because of my blood sugar and fat clearance. So... This is a really good question. It is. And keep in mind, we are not Zoe researchers. (laughs) You know, I'm a consumer of the Zoe program. I'm not involved in the science of it or, you know, running it. I'm just someone who used it and shared about it. have talked to them, of course, because I'm such a fan, because it's such good cutting edge science. You know, we're actually part of the science here. They're using the information they're getting from us. They're continuing to add to the research and learn more about people. So that's what's really exciting here. So, you know, Jen, this is J-E-N, Jen, by the way. So I imagine you're Jennifer. So Jen, I got the same as you, except my my gut microbiome wasn't, you know, bad. It wasn't ideal. It wasn't perfect, but it wasn't bad. But I did have slow blood sugar clearance. Instead of calling it bad, let's just call it slow. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. So do you take the muffins and then later do your food as well? And it determines your blood sugar clearance based on your CGM only? Now, I I don't know what their algorithm is for calculating your blood sugar clearance. No. You enter when you eat the muffins, but you also take a blood sample afterwards. So I don't know what they're using. I mean, I can't answer that because I don't know. They do have your CGM data, obviously, but you also have a blood sample that you you send them within a period of time after having the muffins. So they might be using the blood sample, not the CGM. I don't know. So my question is, I'm just trying to get a sense of the program. Is it like you do the muffins, do the blood sample, do the CGM, and then when you're starting the Zoe program, you like, because you get scores. So is it still monitoring your CGM or do you just put the meal? No, 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 no. Oh, you just put the meals in the app and it gives you a score. It's not like looking. Yeah. Later. Yeah. Later, once you've sent everything in, you send the CGM back and they take all of your data and they have these predictive algorithms that they use and they put, and so everyone has different numbers. So Based, you know, I've did it. Some of the moderators for the my community have done it. So we've compared, you know, back, you know, in discussions, like this is what you know chickpeas are for me. This is what happens to avocado. I mean, you know, we all have different numbers. So they legit every person is going to have something different than than the other people. But it's all based on everything put into this predictive algorithm based on your blood sugar clearance, your blood fat clearance. And what happens with your CGM and what you have in your gut microbiome based on the species that they find in your gut microbiome and what makes the good guys thrive or what would make the bad guys thrive. So they they want you to avoid things that would feed the negative inhabitants of your gut microbiome. And they encourage you to eat the things that are linked to nurturing the good gut microbiome. And then, you know, whether your body handles the fat well, you know, I have slow blood fat clearance. I also had slow blood sugar clearance. So, you know, Jen, I think this is like amazing data because, I mean, think about this. You know, when I wrote Delayed on Deny, we didn't even have this. This research hadn't started yet. Research they're doing now. 2017 was the first time I ever heard of people having a different blood glucose response. That Science was just being reported in 2017 with that TED Talk with Aaron Segal and the whole idea of personalized nutrition. So all of this is unfolding right now. And we're learning that, hey, we don't all process the food the same way. So actually, Jen, 100% yes, if our bodies process this energy slowly, then maybe we do need a longer eating window. Because, you know, think about what we've talked about with Marty Kendall. 
He, he talks about energy toxicity. When we have too much energy building up in our bloodstream, that's not good. And he talks about that with, he has blog posts about it in any kind of energy, whether it's too much fat, too much blood glucose, or even too many ketones building up. Energy toxicity, according to Marty, and he explains this very well in his writing, is when you have too much energy in your blood, that is not what we want. So that being said, you may find that take that same exact amount of food, just like Zoe is prompting you to spread it out, spread it out. Zoe isn't telling you what to eat specifically. You still get to decide what to eat, but think about how you're shifting it around. Also, alternatively, maybe, maybe, you know, you talked about having 60 grams of fat. Maybe your body would do better with less fat. You know, you can also change up what you're eating based on the fact that that might not be good for your body. Like for me, if I eat too much fat, it does feel inflammatory for me. Like when I did keto and I felt so bad. So in order to feel my best, I do feel better when I add less fat to my meals. If I overdo it and have too much fat, I feel a little puffy. I really can tell the difference. And so knowledge is power. You know, we're learning things about our bodies that 10 years ago, no one could have told you. And so instead of being like upset, because I get it, I'm bummed that my body has bad blood fat clearance and or or slow, let's let's use the word slow, not bad, slow blood fat clearance and slow blood sugar clearance. I wish that were not the case, but it's the body I have. And so in order to have the best, you know, outcome for me, if I want to focus on what I'm eating, I can choose whole foods, slightly less fat. You don't have to have zero because you're talking about, you know, if you have 40 grams of fat and then 20 grams of fat later, that's still a lot of fat. You know, the low fat people who are like strictly low fat would not be having 60 grams of fat in a day. So 60 grams of fat is not, you know, destined to not have, have fat. You're still having fat and your food can still be delicious. But just spreading it out a little bit might be better for your body. That's what... Their science is is telling them that's why they're they're making these recommendations. One thing about them that's interesting, a lot of people may not know this. I've got some friends that went through it way earlier than I did, like a whole year before I did. I didn't have time. I was working on Fast Feast Repeat. I didn't have time to fool with it at that time. I was like, I, I'll just come back to it later. And I did. But they changed the app recommendations right in the middle of while, while all my friends were that did it before me were in the middle of trying to create their meals. They had rerun data. They had new data, and it changed the recommendations. They're like, what? The recommendations are different. But they are they are genuinely responding to what they're learning. Like they are changing and, and making changes to the recommendations as they get more data. They didn't just like get some data, and now they're just going on that old data. It's, it's new and updated. Am I explaining this well, Melanie? Mm-hmm. Yes. It, it's responding to what they're learning. So as they gather more data from more participants, they're refining everything about the process. But I mean, this is ongoing scientific research. So, you know, I bet in, in three years we'll know more than we know now. I mean, I know that's true. So don't be bummed about it, even though I know that, you know, you asked a lot of questions about, does that mean I shouldn't fast as, as long? Well, you know, you could still fast as long if you tweaked what you were eating a little bit or just have a slightly longer eating window. I really don't think there's a giant difference. I mean, think about it, though. If you're having the exact same amount of food, you're calling it one meal a day, you're eating it in a short period of time versus if you spread it out a few hours apart, I don't think you're going to have a vastly different like fasting experience. Does that make sense, Melanie? Because that's really kind of how I do it anyway. My one meal a day is not like an hour. What I eat is spaced out over a few hours. So don't feel like you, you're not going to get you know, the health benefits of fasting if you have to eat for like a five-hour window. That's okay. Quick side note question because you mentioned it. You recorded with Marty Kendall yesterday, right? He streamed it in his Facebook group. Did he ask you any questions for me? Yes, he did. He did. Because he messaged me and was like, what questions should I ask Jen that the audience might like to hear? What did he ask you? I can't remember. We had talked for so, about so many things. I can't remember which ones were you. We talked. And also it was like 6 p.m. and I hadn't eaten yet. So I was like, I'm ready to have some food now. <laughs> I had a 24-hour fast yesterday. I don't usually. But we had such a fun conversation. I love Marty Kendall. 
He's great. But, you know, the whole idea of it really, what Zoe is telling us from the results of our, you know, our clearance is the same thing Marty is saying. It's, it's, you don't want to have too much energy building up in your bloodstream. We're learning that. So question about, again, about the muffins. And I would like to try this out. They never answered the email that you sent. Is there a low carb muffin test at all or no? No. (laughs) You're not going to like these muffins. They're full of yucky stuff. They're not high quality, like artisanal muffins. (laughs) It's it's funky fats. It's funky. So you're eating fat in the context of carbs and it's testing your fat clearance. Yeah. These are not the muffins that you would eat. Okay. You have, but it's it's only just like that one period of time and it's short and then you're done with it. But the thing I'm trying to focus on is it doesn't test fat clearance in the context of a low carb situation. It sounds like it only tests fat clearance in the context of carbs. Of their experiment. It only tests what they are testing. It's based on just that one variable. They have one variable and is here's the muffin. I mean, you're the variable, I guess. I mean, the muffin is not a variable. The muffin is controlled. What your body does with it is is what they're trying to see. Same muffin for everybody. So again, I haven't done Zoe, so I can't comment specifically, but just what I'm hearing, it sounds like it's testing, sounds like it's testing the concern that I've had that I've like talked about on this show for, I mean, maybe since day one, which is fats and carbs together. Yeah. Like that's why I personally, so Zoe, so I haven't done Zoe, but that's why I personally eat to address that. And I eat to address that in a way that actually allows liberal amounts of fat if I so desire. That's why I was asking about if they do a low carb thing, because it sounds like they're testing fat clearance in the context of carbs. Well, there's two different kinds of muffins. Did you know that? That you get? You do a a high fat muffin and then you do a a higher sugar muffin. Does the high fat muffin have carbs in it though? Yes. Neither is low of, of what you would consider. So neither muffin would be what you would consider low fat or low sugar, but it's lower than the other one. Like like the one that's high fat obviously has a higher proportion of fat, but it still has the carbs. And the one that is the higher sugary muffin still has fat in it. It's just a lower proportion. They change the proportion of the ingredients that you're having. My curiosity there is for people that it brands as poor fat clearers, it sounds like we don't know if they are poor fat clearers in the context of a ketogenic diet, just that they are in the context of carbs. Well, that would be a different study. Right. But so the reason I'm drawing attention to that is I'm a little bit concerned if they get labeled as a bad fat clear, it might just be that, the, and again, I'm speaking from a very uninformed position and that I don't know the technicalities of what they're testing and everything, but it sounds like people might be bad fat clearers in a carb context, which is what they're testing. I don't know if that always translates to bad fat clears in the ketogenic state. The ironic thing, and now I'm just just thinking right now, like I hadn't pre-thought about this. The ironic thing is those that are bad fat clearers, if they like fat, they might actually respond better to a low carb, higher fat diet because that would make it easier to clear fat. Yeah, I'm not following that. I don't know. (laughs) Like I know that, okay, I felt awful on low carb and I felt inflamed and came back as a poor fat clearer, unsurprisingly. I don't feel like having a really high fat diet made me feel great. It didn't. So a lot of people who do really well on low carb, it's often because they don't do well, you know, on carbs. And so one of the reasons they don't do well on carbs might be because they're poor fat clearers in the context of carbs. So yeah, well, that's certainly a possibility, but that would be a whole different experiment. It would be interesting. What I'm trying to say is I don't think that means that you can't have fats. I think a lot of people might extrapolate from that, that they need to be on a low fat diet accordingly, or you know that they need to watch their fats because they're not good at clearing fats. An alternative that, that Zoe, I don't think is going to recommend based on what I know about it, an alternative might actually be a low carb diet and then you could have more fats. So if you're a bad fat clearer, there are two ways you can go. And it's the way that I actually live my life, 
which is not combining fats and carbs. So I, I anticipate, I don't know if I'm a bad fat clearer, but I feel like I am. And that's why I eat my one meal a day, but I do either low fat or low carb and I don't combine the two. So basically just like if it says you're a bad fat clearer, I think there might actually be multiple ways that you could use that data. So like for Jen, if she does want to have a lot of fat, I love what she said and what Jen was saying about, you know, spreading it out over a long amount of time or maybe trying fat in the context of a low carb diet. Yeah. I feel like you just don't know that though. Like when you say that someone who's a bad fat clearer because they're having the muffin because it has carbs in it too, that it was the carbs that made them be a bad fat clearer. So just have a lot of fat and not carbs and you'll be fine. I don't think that's what we can just jump to. That's the, that's the answer. Oh, 100%. But we also can't make the other assumption that they're a bad fat clear just by the fat. We don't know. Well, I think most people, and I know that that might be hard for you or maybe some people in the audience to realize, most people eat fats and carbs together all the time. Oh, I know. That's not that's not hard for me to realize. Right. Most people are not low carb or low fat. They're eating food together. So Zoe is targeting people who are eating like the normal context of food. And most people eat things that are combined. So they give us food that's combined and they're testing the combined foods instead of isolating because they're not trying to, you know, limit macros. Like Zoe is like, even for me with my slower fat clearance, Zoe doesn't recommend that I go low fat I just need to be a little more mindful with how I'm having it and not compressing it because she's exactly right. If I have too much fat in a short window, my score goes down. But again, they're also not trying to make you keep your score to any certain thing. It's just, you know, we tend to gamify things like that. You know, it's like, well, if I can get a score, I want to get a hundred, <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't want to get a 60. It's, it's just teaching you what pattern might be better for your body. And then you design your life accordingly, if that makes sense. I 100% that I realize most people eat mixed macro situations with what they're testing. And this is why I would love to interview them. So I'm going to follow up on that email. But yes, they are testing a mixed macro situation because that is how the majority of people are eating. Right. Which is why I was saying with the fasting, I think a solution for a lot of people, even though the majority of like the population eats mixed macros. A lot of people in the health sphere do play with macros specifically. So I think, you know, there are a lot of potential solutions if it says that you're a bad fat clearer. There's, you know, spreading it out and seeing how that makes you feel. Then there's, there is playing with the macros. So doing, and that is what they recommend. They recommend, you know, spreading it out because then you're clearing, you have time to clear it. That's the whole point of it. You know, when you, because you put in your meal and the time that you eat it. And so it predicts based on the data they have on you, how long it will take for you to clear it. I wish they would do a low carb muffin too. I wonder how that would change things. That would be a whole different study, right? I mean, they could still like, I wish they would do it as like, maybe like a two day thing where you do or just, you know, just another another arm of the study. So like another part of the protocol, of the testing protocol that you do. Because it would seem that you would want to know how you clear fat, you know, in the context of just fat. A lot of people have been talking about it in my Facebook group, their thoughts and everything. And people seem to really, really like the the gut microbiome findings. Because you test, don't you do a stool sample as well? Yes, you do. Yeah. So people are having something that that's great. I, I want to do it for that. Like I really, really do want to do it. And like figuring out your, your gut microbiome and all of that. And then people love, you know, hearing about the, the fat clearance as well. People seem to say that in general, it seems to recommend lower fat, like regardless Perhaps it's based more on the foods that they think support the microbiome. Probably so. I mean, you have to know that's their, that is his foundation. That is Tim Spector's foundation. I mean, you know, if you ask a plumber to come over and he's going to do plumbing stuff, right? If you ask a gut researcher to do something, he's going to spin it towards, you know, the gut because he he knows the health of, of the gut and and what nourishes your gut. And so that's what he's focusing on. And it shouldn't surprise people. I mean, I, when people get those results back, you're getting gut researcher recommendations on what that gut researcher, based on research, believes will feed your gut the best. And it might not be what, you know, 
a diet book that you read recommending carnivore said to eat. I'm just throwing that out as an example. But a gut researcher is looking at the gut and what is going to make that thrive. But whereas somebody who's like writing a book about keto may be just focusing on what your blood sugar levels are doing or something. I don't know. It's just people focus on different parts of what our bodies are doing. Of course, we are not doing anything in isolation. That's the thing. We're not just our gut. We're not just our blood sugar response. We're It's all of it together. Yep, 100%. So then she has one more question. She says, I've also been wearing a CGM since I finished the Zoe test because I love the data that it gave. I used Melanie's discount for NutriSense. Thank you. Anyway, I've been experimenting with berberine also after hearing Melanie talk about it. Melanie, you are an influencer, even though you don't think you are. Admittedly, sometimes to see what I can, quote, get away with during my eating window with the little like emoji that's like, <laughs> I don't know what you call that emoji. What would you call that emoji? I don't know. Grimacing? Grimacing. Yeah, I was thinking grimacing. Yeah. She says, I take only 500 milligrams of Thorin Berberine 500 once a day, about 30 minutes before my meal. I take it only on days I eat a lot of carbs. It definitely blunts my glucose response, but sometimes I notice around three to six hours later, I'll have a big spike or two up to 140s to 150s. Is this because the Berberine can only suppress the spike for so long? It looks like the half-life is around five hours, but I would have already finished eating a couple hours prior. I don't want to take another dose because I don't want to risk hypoglycemia. And how long should it be taken? I read it has antimicrobial properties, which I imagine would worsen my gut microbiome. Any thoughts on the new blood sugar breakthrough from Bioptimizers or Pendulum Probiotics? Thank you, ladies. Now, that is totally a Melanie question. I'm going to defer to you. I was going to say, Jen, do you want me to take this one? Well, oh, yeah, I don't even want to answer that. I don't know what berberine's doing in your body. First of all, I'll put a link in the show notes to two things. To the discount for NutriSense, if you'd like to get a CGM, I have a code for 15% off. I think it's melanieavalon.com slash NutriSense CGM with the coupon Melanie Avalon. I think either way, we'll put it in the show notes. Second thing, I'll put a link to the interview that I did with Sean Wells. He's really big in the supplement world. And we had a very long conversation about berberine. I am a huge fan of berberine. It has been shown to basically rival the beneficial health effects of metformin, which is a pharmaceutical, and it lowers blood sugar pretty consistently. When I've worn a CGM, I've seen that it can do really great things for my blood sugar levels. It's debated about how it works. Probably it reduces actual glucose absorption in the GI tract. And then also it might be that it actually downregulates the liver's production of glucose. So downregulating gluconeogenesis in the liver. As far as, so she's taking it and she's seeing that it reduces, but then she has a big spike later. I don't know. It could be that the berberine is, you know, cause she talks about the half-life. It could be that it is blunting that initial spike, but then there's still glucose absorbing later on. Could be that it, you know, it only has an immediate effect for you and the liver. I don't know, but it sounds like it is quote, petering out in a way. In any case, I would encourage you not to take it for, because she says she basically takes it to see what she can, quote, get away with. I think it's a, a little bit of a dangerous path. I feel like a lot of people do this with metformin and diabetic medications and insulin even, basically, you know, relying on those to mitigate the potential blood sugar issues from the diet. And I, I would just encourage you to maybe occasionally, but try not to make that a habit because we don't want to be relying on something like berberine to undo potentially dangerous blood sugar spikes. And also because she said, how long can it be taken? So there's a lot of debate out there about taking it long-term versus not. People have been talking about this a lot in my Facebook group. My Facebook group, by the way, is IF Biohackers. So I've been taking it for months now and I'm probably going to keep taking it. And I know some people think it like Sean is a fan of taking it every day, basically for life, but I'm not a doctor. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that we know. I mean, we don't have data of someone who takes berberine every day for years. We don't know. I guess we know people will take metformin every day for years, and it seems like it has the benefits of metformin without the potential negative side effects. But yeah, I can't really speak to it. But I feel like Jen is probably spot on with what is happening as far as it's, you know, blunting it in the beginning and then 
not so much later. I actually haven't tried blood sugar breakthrough by Bioptimizers. People have posted in the group about it and love it. So I definitely need to try it. I have no idea what Pendulum probiotics are, so I can't comment. What's blood sugar breakthrough supposed to do? It's sort of like berberine. Yeah. It's supposed to lower blood sugar levels. So I think it's like berberine, cinnamon. It's like all these different things. So it has a few different ingredients. It has propolis, bitter melon, Tibetan holy fruit extract, gluco advantage. Okay. So this is actually dihydroberberine. Okay. If it contains gluco advantage, I think that's Sean Wells's. I think he patented that. I could be incorrect. I think Sean did that. So it has dihydroberberine, which is a much more potent form of berberine. It has sinulin. It has ALA, alpha-lipoic acid, inoslim, benfotiamine, glucofit, which is a patented banaba leaf extract. It has gymna leaf. I can't even pronounce this. Fucohaxthin. Yeah. Okay. So it's got a lot of stuff in it, but basically it's stuff to lower resting blood sugar levels. So you could try that or you could just start with berberine. Okay. That was a lot. That was a lot. So this has been absolutely wonderful. A few things for listeners before we go, you'll definitely want to check out the show notes for today's show because we talked about a lot and there will be a full transcript there and show notes and links to everything that we talked about. That will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 217. If you would like to submit your own questions to the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can follow us on Instagram. We are IF Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, Jen is Jen Stevens. And I think that is everything. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? No, I think that was it. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful and I will talk to you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories, and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.